Welcome to Unicorny, the antidote to post-rationalized business books. I'm your host, Dom Hawes, and this is a podcast about the practice of marketing, how it creates value, who's doing it well, and how marketing helps businesses win the future. Today, you are joining me for part two of Unicorny's foray into the work of Daniel Priestley. Now, I am not going to reintroduce or summarize where we got to in part one, other than to say this. In part one, we looked at the economic climate that gave birth to Daniel's first book called Key Person of Influence. We then looked at some of the cultural and technological catalysts that created the opportunity for people like you and people like me to become business influencers in defined niches or across defined campaigns. We looked at the five P's framework that is essentially your playbook for how to become a key person of influence. Now, if you didn't listen to it, I suggest you go back and listen to that part of the episode before continuing with this one. Because right now, we're going to the studio to pick up where we left off with Daniel Priestley. I'm going to move on now to a little bit about 24 assets. Sure. Um, Because I see the two being very closely connected and the concept of creating these assets that work for you while you sleep. It seems to be that's the ecosystem that's going to support you as you may, that maybe that's your product. I don't know, but that's the, the series of assets that support you. Yeah, key person of influence is about you as the leader or the entrepreneur and 24 assets is about the business. How do we build the business? How do we enhance the business for yep. the digital age? So if we think we've gone through a digital transformation as a planet, what do you do? Key person of influence, what does yeah. the business do, 24 assets? And you've broken those down into, I think, around six different classes of assets, which are quite interesting. It's just a very interesting way of thinking about often quite intangible assets mm. and thinking about actually how are you how are you going to cultivate them. The first of which is um, intellectual property right, or IP assets. And I think most people understand that because they're creating content or they've got sort of trademarks or mm-hmm. patents. I wonder how many businesses are actually writing playbooks to record and systemize the production of those IP assets. There's assets that are not formalized and then there are formalized assets. So like if you imagine in the kind of like the early days of Australia being discovered, quote unquote discovered, there was all this land there. It was kind of uncategorized as far as the British were concerned and they had to come and say, well, okay, well, we we need to kind of put some borders around this and say who owns it. So there might be certain things that you're doing that could be intellectual property, but you need to kind of formalize it. If it's protectable, you could trademark it, you could do a pattern around it, or you could at least formalize it into a structured playbook. So a brand guidelines document or a, um, you know, a signature piece of content that Yep. That, that informs all the other pieces of content. So yeah, you're trying to pin it down in some way so that it's your asset, that it's not just kind of like directionally your asset. It's yeah, actually- unique and identifiable and it actually leads to you. Yes. Yeah. Brand assets, I think people on this podcast will probably understand pretty well. Uh, we're talking about brand here, I guess, at the highest level. It's a philosophical construct. In the book, I talk about philosophy, identity and personalities. So philosophy is like, um, you know, if we say just do it, yeah. we know who we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, if we have a picture of the swoosh, we, we've got an identity that we yeah. know what we're talking about. And if we say Michael Jordan jumping yeah. in the air with his legs out, you know, we know that that is Michael Jordan. So a great brand has a philosophy, identity, and people who bring it to life. So I want to pin all those down into assets. I want to make sure that we've got those three. Okay, and where would you put influencers? If it's formalised, yeah, then they're personalities or ambassadors, yeah. And do you think that's an important part of business to business? It's, it's massively. Yeah. Look at how humans are wired, especially these yeah. days. You know, the more confused the brain, 
the more we go back to our primitive urges. We have primal urges to get to know people, to form human hierarchies, um, to have leaders, uh, to look for people who are leaders. We don't really like business brands very much. Richard Branson, for 50 years, has been telling us to love Virgin. Right? <laughs> he, he, he sticks it on hot air balloons and he sticks it on airplanes and trains and islands and spaceships. Like He really wants us to love Virgin. Only about 250,000, 300,000 people follow Virgin on Twitter. 12.5 million people follow Branson. People love Branson a yeah. lot more than yeah. they love Virgin. Even Apple. Apple runs a fortune worth of marketing through its Apple account. Tim Cook's got twice as many followers and he only tweets occasionally. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, I think 600 million followers on Instagram. Every single football club combined is less than 200 million. Wow. So one player has yeah. three times more followers than all clubs. These are 100-year-old clubs. We don't like faceless brands at all. Would we have bought Air Jordans without Michael Jordan? Would we have gotten excited about, you know, those kind of – would we have gotten excited about Apple without Jobs? Yeah, they all bring it to life, don't they? They do. It's part of their story and we want to buy into, the, into their story more than the brand story. It's how the brain, yeah. it's the doorway. The brain just cannot access the emotions without the person. Which leads us on to the next one, which is marketing assets. And of course, positioning is an important part of that. Well, value proposition and positioning. And there's a lot of discourse about both at the moment. And I had a bit of an epiphany this week. As marketers and consultants, of course, one of our outputs is the positioning statement. And of course, there are many formulas for producing them. Um, we're going to look at those, I think, in some episodes in future. Positioning statements are often used to align communication and team members behind core messaging and to ensure consistency and that kind of stuff. And this is the point. You can define your desired positioning, but your actual positioning is the work that other people bring you unsolicited. It's your inbound, if you like. You are who they perceive you to be because their market entry point to you, it's what's in their head. That's what's in their head, yeah. Yeah, it seemed to me that really played in almost more than any of the other pieces of 24 assets into key person of influence because that one thing that you're known for, the easiest way, the most resonant way to communicate that is through a very clear positioning as an expert in that market. Yeah, so you want to formalize that. In KPI, you formalize your positioning by sticking it on the title of the book. Because um, you, yeah, if okay. you wrote the book on it, why am I here talking about Key Person of Influence? Because I wrote the book called wrote Key book. Person of Influence. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's the positioning. Yeah. So awards are a really good positioning asset. If you've okay. won a Michelin star, that's going to transform your restaurant. SEO actually is a great positioning asset. If I keep Googling a particular term and your name keeps coming up, that is one hell of an asset. Okay, product assets. Yeah, so I've got four product assets in there. So I've got gift products, free stuff that you give yeah. away. Product for prospects assets, which is the initial work that you do to win the work. Core business products and uh, ongoing product for clients or subscription products. So I break down the product ecosystem into those four products. And when I work with companies, I try and get them to build out all four so that they can give something away for free. Uh, they can do an initial piece of work, they can do a transformation and then they can subscribe you to a lifetime of journey. What size companies are these? Are they all, si all sizes? I or? work with startups yep. um, and we plan out their product ecosystem right from the beginning, right from the beginning yeah, yeah. Um, or at least have directionally correct idea yep. of what it might be, right through to big companies. Um, most of the time, big companies have got a pretty evolved product ecosystem, but I've met plenty of big companies that have a subscription product, that's it. They might have a gold, silver, bronze version of that, but you know, there's other things that they can put in there. And there are a lot of big companies that are kind of incubating new ideas and they'll try and bring new 
products or new, new businesses through to market. And I suppose they they might be ideal for that kind of yeah, product. Yeah, well, uh, you know, big company tends to be a lot of little businesses yeah. that are all bolted together. Uh, so ideally, if you want a particular standalone venture within the bigger business, yeah, having all yeah. four products works well. And system assets, playbooks. I'm big on playbooks. At the yeah, moment. playbooks, IT, yeah. um, automation. Platforms. Yeah, any yeah. of that sort of stuff. Yeah. I, I break it down into three types of systems, sales and marketing, admin management and operational delivery. So essentially, you know, putting systems in in those three baskets. And score app, that, that presumably is a system asset. So when someone buys that from score you, score app hits on several. Okay. So score app is a sales and marketing system. It's a really good product for prospects to have an assessment and it creates uh, data assets. So it actually hits a home run. You tick three or four things okay. off with, with uh, once you've got a score up scorecard. And the last one, but by no means least, the culture assets. Yeah, and there's another layer. There's a secret layer on top as well. But the culture assets are different to the people themselves. The culture assets are the things that bring the people and, and, and attract the people. So if we said that, um, you know, we think that great people tend to work at Deloitte, let's say, well, then the culture assets are, you know, what is it about Deloitte that attracts great people? So if all the great people left and we had to replace them, that would be the culture assets that we have available. So it can be everything from job descriptions or role yep. descriptions. It can be the employer brand. It can be the way that uh, incentives uh, are unlocked. So it can be the structure of rewards. It can be the way that you conduct meetings. Uh, you know, there's some strong culture assets at Amazon, for example, and some of it's, you know, obviously folklore, but things like having a spare chair in every meeting for the customer so that you're okay. focused on customer centricity. One thing that I love that Amazon does is they do the future state PR release, press release. So the perfect press release, I think they call it. Yeah. And that is where you think into the future, we want to put out a perfect press release that explains what this project achieved and yeah. all the FAQs and we start by writing that document and then yeah. we work backwards from there. It's those types of things that attract high performers. Yeah, the Amazon thing. I have to say someone did it on me and it was quite annoying at the time. They did the press release and then the full Q&A and that's okay. I got it. I understand it. But if you're then going to try and take that process to like some investors, they won't get that at all unless they're really into the Amazon culture thing. But I think that's the thing about culture, isn't it? It's specific to an environment and a company and it, and it doesn't always translate. And it attracts some people and it repels some people. The final layer is uh, funding assets. So it's basically uh, the assets that you require yeah. to get the capital. Yeah. Um, so things like business plans and forecasts yeah. and de-risking, so those sorts of things. Basically, you end up with this whole ecosystem. It's kind of like this. If you look at a building and you're not a builder, you're not an engineer, you're not an architect, you look at a building and you go, oh, that's one thing, it's a building. But if you understand buildings, you know that there's different systems at play. There's plumbing, there's electricity, there's um, the structure, foundations, there's roofing and waterproofing, and then there's the interior and the fit out and all of yeah. those things. So it's actually, a, a, you're layering on top of each other all these different systems and they all clip together to create one thing that looks yeah. like a nice pretty building to the untrained eye. Once you understand 24 assets, you can look at any business and go, oh, actually I can now see it in its parts. It's a set of systems sitting on top of each other, a set of you know, things, yep. and I can break it down. I guess like a doctor, when a doctor looks at a human body, they see it differently to those of us who haven't been trained. So what I like about it is I think that approach of, of separating them out into the 24 assets makes it really tangible and easy for people to understand and do. And I know there are other EOSs out there, which mm. is very prescriptive and you have to do things in a certain way. 
I like the freedom that 24 Assets gives you because it's not dictating the method in which you must do it. It's just saying you must have them. Yeah, it's just saying these are the things that add value. You might have some already. You might need some. You might have some that need dusting off or improving. Um, But let's go through, have a look and see what you got and what you need. Fantastic. Well, as before, people can find out more about 24 Assets by buying the book. Obviously. Take, or they can take the 24 Assets scorecard. They can take the uh, There's a scorecard. Well, we'll link the scorecard on our show notes. Yeah. Uh, 24assets.com. There you go. So go take the scorecard, find out where you are on your 24 Assets, and I'll make a mental note to do the very same thing. It's that time again, where we take a small break to recap where we are and summarise some of the takeaways so far. Well, for the last quarter of an hour or so, we have been talking about Daniel Priestley's book, 24 Assets, which to my mind works hand in hand with key personal of influence. I mentioned at the beginning, KPI is all about you or those colleagues of yours that you want to position as subject matter experts. 24 Assets is about your company. It's about building things within your business that work independently of you and your team, contributing to the business's growth and stability without taking your time. Now, I've tried to give you a flavour for the book, but there really is no substitute for reading it yourself. So what have we talked about so far? Well, we started talking about IP or intellectual property right assets. We probably all know what those are, but have we all taken the time to formalise them and turn them into protected assets? For example, have you trademarked your most important strap lines? your brands, identities, and product or service names. I guess that's kind of obvious, but have you? If you're a regular listener, you'll know that we speak about playbooks a lot. You may remember that when we spoke to Peter Russell-Smith a couple of months ago, we identified playbooks as one of the top three value drivers, along with EBITDA and quality of your revenue. Daniel reinforces the importance of documented processes or playbooks as part of your IP asset base. So how are you getting on turning your process into playbooks? Well, we're taking our own advice too, by the way. It's exactly what we're doing with Unicorny. Our content production process is documented and it's now built into a templated workflow application to make sure we stay on track with production. If you haven't started documenting your own IP, well... I guess now is as good time as any to start. When we talked about market assets, we discussed positioning. Now, this is an area we've discussed in the past, and it's something we're going to come back to in the future as well. We discussed value propositions with Barbara Moreno in episode 7. That was a great conversation, and if you haven't listened to it already, you should go back. It's definitely worth listening to. And the episode after next, we meet global marketing guru Jeffrey Moore, and he introduces a killer consideration when thinking about the market and positioning your business. Now, I commented earlier that I had had an epiphany that your positioning is the unsolicited work or offers of work your customers bring you. Now, after the show, I had a little bit of imposter syndrome, and I wondered whether an epiphany to me is bleeding obvious to everyone else. So, since recording that show, I went out and I've been road testing it, and I can report that it is not a no-brainer to many. If it's a no-brainer to you, bear with me, I've dug a hole and I'm going to dig it deeper. While you fill your pipeline with customers that validate your own positioning, it's only those that convert that are buying your story. So as you move down the funnel, you get closer to the truth of what your positioning 
really is. What you convert is both who you are and who you are about to become, because every customer you win is validation for the next one. So if you want to audit your positioning, speak to the last customers who bought or the last customers who brought you unsolicited work. Ideally, you receive work according to the expertise you project. So the assets you create and the KPI campaigns you run should reflect who you are and who you want to become. Now, I mentioned at the end of part one that I'd include an enhanced summary of Daniel's interview because he moves at such pace and has such broad knowledge that summarising today ain't going to be easy. Well, if you think that's not easy, wait till you hear the mind fry he's about to drop. It's big! If you want to discuss this or any other idea, theme or topic we cover, let me know directly through LinkedIn or at unicorny.co.uk. Okay, prepare to be blown away. We're heading back to the studio. Hey, Daniel, I was really struck while I was doing the research for this show that you wrote KPI 15 years ago. Now, I know I've already mentioned that two or three times in the show already, but what you described back then really is a true reflection of where we're living now. Mm-hmm. Where are we going? Where Where does Daniel Priestley think Crystal we're going? Crystal ball time? And yeah, totally. You, you, you're obviously a bit of a futurologist. What, to you, what does the next five or 10 years look like? There's a few different ways you'd approach that. Through the lens of technology, AI is the, the big general purpose technology that impacts every industry. And that's going to be probably more profound and more transformational than the internet itself. We go back to when that we heard that first dial-up noise, <laughs> dung, 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 yeah. right? And, and you know, who, who, who would have guessed where that would have taken yeah. us and who would have guessed that we would have, you know, YouTube and Google Maps and Uber and food delivery and, you know, that we'd live on our phones and all that kind of stuff. So we've just crossed that kind of first moment, the Netscape moment, I guess you'd say, yeah. with, with ChatGPT. Obviously, that's going to be a massive transformation because skilled labour has been so scarce in the last hundred years that we place such a high value on it. You know, if you're a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer, you know, that's almost synonymous with being upper middle class. Whereas along comes this technology that just makes it ubiquitous and free. And... People who are like, oh, yeah, some at some point in the future, they're not recognising that the way AI learns is very rapid. So you can give an AI system enough data and it can go from not knowing how to play chess to being the best chess player in the world in 24 hours. You know, it cannot understand how something's done to being the best ever in under a day. So, you know, it's only a matter of time before it just piece by piece by piece gets all the medical information and becomes the best doctor gets all the legal contracts that have ever been written and becomes the best lawyer. You know, yesterday I dropped 400 lines of data into ChatGPT and didn't give it any context whatsoever and it spat out a report and told me what the data was about and what I should know yeah. about it. It was insane. It is mad, um, yeah. Absolutely is mad, mad stuff. Yeah. So AI is obviously going to transform everything. There's going to be some really big wedges driven through society. So let me give you the first massive wedge that will drive a wedge in society. AI has two superpowers. The first superpower is to get you to hyper-consume. So you didn't intend to spend two hours on TikTok and you you know, you know thought, oh, I'll just check the app, and then two <laughs> hours later, boom. How did that happen? That was AI. That, that was AI figuring you out yeah. and figuring out exactly which 15-second clip would hold your attention 
while it came up with the next one and the next one and the next one. It is wonderful at getting you to hyper-consume. It's going to get you to buy stuff that you didn't want to buy, listen to stuff you didn't want to listen to, watch stuff you didn't want to watch, connect with people you didn't want to connect with, right? It's going to do all of that. So It's hi- already doing a lot of that, by It the way. is, yeah, <laughs> yeah hyper-consumption. Yeah, yeah. And so on one side of the wedge, you've got a lot of humans who are – very susceptible to hyperconsumption, especially young people whose brain, you know, under 25, the brain's not fully formed. So it's going to be a, a, an endemic situation where young people who grew up with TikTok are permanently damaged by their experience with TikTok, for example. So these people won't be very productive. They won't be able to get much done. They'll just be hyperconsumers. Um, and then on the other side of the wedge is AI has this superpower to get you to hyperproduce, hypercreate. So you get these people who are super creative. They come up with an idea for a $100 million company and the business is up and formed in a week and it's got its first customers in a month and it's scaling at 10% month on month in three months. And at the end of year one, it's well on its way. And at yeah. the end of year two, it's worth $50 million, And at the end of year three, it's worth $100 million and it's sold. So you're going to get these people who just use AI to hyper-produce and they'll form teams and they'll just like, it'll be chalk and cheese. You're going to get these people who are stuck you know, and you're already seeing this in America. So if you go for a walk in Santa Monica, you know, on every single block is a low-level threat from someone who is, you know, on drugs and homeless yeah. and all this. We're going to divide society in, in the haves and the have-nots or the, or the consumers and the creators. So AI is going to do that. But at the same time, the bottom one or two billion people on the planet who have been held back they're going to get super excited about what they can do because they suddenly have access to the world's best educator, GP, architect, yeah. engineer, coder. So suddenly that entrepreneur, you know that in communities that have been suppressed, they're hyper-entrepreneurial. You take communism out of a communist country and they all start businesses, yeah. Yeah. right? So what happened in China, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Mad. Very, uh, yeah, Eastern yeah. Europe, very yeah, entrepreneurial yeah, yeah. people. So you're going to take the bottom billion or so people and give them these insane tools and they're just going to rise up real yeah. fast and that's going to be glorious, but you're going to have an opposite effect in the West. That'll happen. You know, so that's one lens. I think the other thing too is through all of human history, we already had artificial intelligence or we called it natural intelligence and it's called soil. And what did we do with soil? Well, what we did is we prompted it, we put a little seed in there and then we stood back and the soil just magically knew what to do with the seed and it grew uh, uh, wheat and then we just harvested the wheat. Now, if you asked anyone, how, how's it doing that? How is that little tiny seed turning into wheat? And like, how does that happen? We said, we don't know. We call it God. Um, right, But humans, what was our job was just to plant seeds and harvest wheat. Now, AI is like soil. You put a little prompt in there, and we don't know how it does it, but it spits out something of much greater value. In an era where soil is the main producer of value, there's a small number of people who get to own the land called landlords, kings, queens, dukes, duchesses, the aristocracy. They own all the land. Everyone else becomes a serf on the land, right? So their job is just to plant seeds and pick fruit and plant seeds and pick fruit and hopefully the king doesn't chop their head off. And we're going to move into that society very rapidly where we essentially have people who own the digital soil, the AI um, infrastructure, and those are going to be the kings, King Mark Zuckerberg and Kim Sergey and Larry. And, and then the rest of us become serfs uh, whose job is to plant seeds and pick fruit on the, on the <laughs> land. With a few exceptions. So there were merchants. Merchants are people who carved out their own little, you know, place of doing things and they lived on their own rules. So ultimately now is this moment. You've got to get ahead of the curve on this. You've got to become hyper-creative, not consumptive. 
you've got to figure out, well, what's my little piece of land that I want to own? Um, I can't own the continent, but I can own this little piece of land. Um, and how do I get myself into the merchant class as opposed to being a serf? Because for 10,000 years, humans have not been nice to each other. 10,000 years, it's the haves and the have-nots. And only for about 150 years have we even thought about this idea of a middle class. And we built it. We constructed it deliberately. So in the absence of those conditions, there's a 10,000-year history that we just go back to neo-feudalism. I'm, I'm sure you don't like so, that answer. Well, <laughs> in a funny kind of way, I do. I mean, it's a little bit dystopian, but I can see exactly what you're talking about. And the key to becoming a merchant, of course, is having influence. Yeah. Like you have to have a point of view, you have to have an influence, you have to have people who are prepared to, in a merchant's case, back in the join day, your ship. join your ship and trade with you. Yep. Now, same thing. And you've got to have a charter course. You've got to, you've got to become an, an expert in going from point A to point B. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's re- really, really important. But the world is definitely on, its, uh, on, a, on a big change we're going for we're about to go through a big big change oh well i warned you what an extraordinary and insightful mind daniel has and wow what an articulate speaker i hope you enjoyed this show as much as we enjoyed making it now there's loads for us to analyze today and as usual you can find a transcript and summary observations on today's show notes The full version of the show notes is available on our website at unicorny.co.uk. Don't forget, you can also find blogs and other content based around the subject of today's podcast by checking out my newsletter at LinkedIn, looking at the blog page on unicorny.co.uk, and we'll also publish blogs when the subject is more digitally oriented to stateofdigital.com. I think today I'm going to frame all of my takeaways through Daniel's metaphor that draws parallels between the evolution of AI and historical socioeconomic structures based on land ownership. The idea that AI is like soil really took me aback, but I like it. Before hydroponics and vertical farms became a thing, soil was the sole platform for growing crops. With his metaphor, AI is described as the medium for growth and production in the digital era. Instead of seeds, we plant prompts or inputs, and these yield outputs without the prompter understanding the intricacies of the process. AI, then, is a fertile ground for innovation and creation, capable of transforming simple inputs into valuable outputs, much like soil turns a seed into a crop. I thought Daniel's comparison between landowners of the past and the owners of AI infrastructure as striking as it is frightening for you and me. He suggests that the AI age could lead to a societal structure more like medieval feudalism, where a small elite owns the AI land and the rest of us are no more than serfs working on this land. He describes a destiny with terrifying disparity in control and wealth like historical class structures, but in a modern digital context. And that much power and wealth concentrated in the hands of so few? Hmm, It's not a future I want to see. And it brings his published work sharply into focus. KPI was born from Daniel's observation that people with vitality, those who are the irreplaceable life force in their business, will thrive. Whereas those who can be replaced, or those who just turn up to work and bring no extra value... Well, they may have more time on their hands than they bargained for. 
So we all need to work at being key persons of influence and developing our 24 assets. Key persons of influence own territory. Daniel owns KPI, which is a piece of territory. He's staked a claim to it and he's won it. Through 24 assets, he's now working that territory to create value for him and his team. And that's a model that we can all emulate too. It's what Daniel refers to as being a merchant. But Daniel's AI metaphor spells out the case for market development or staking territory so plainly that at this stage I'd say, ignore it at your peril. As the marketer in your organization, you are the protector of future value. You develop, manage and exploit half of the assets on Daniel's list. You have enormous power to protect your business by staking a claim to territory in the new world. How you do it is up to you. But you couldn't choose a better place to start than key person of influence and 24 assets. That's all we have time for today, folks. So thank you very much indeed for listening. Now, if this is your first ever episode of Unicorny, firstly, welcome. Um, secondly, there's a massive back catalogue now of amazing speakers. Um, so last week, of course, was a, another Daniel uh, episode. Before that, we spoke to Charlotte Lander about senior executives and social media, social's role in the demise of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse. Um, we talked about half-naked massage or more particularly why it's not a good look look for LinkedIn and how frameworks are a critical asset for crisis management. And looking forwards, next episode, we are speaking to Jörg Kluckmann from Fenastra, who's going to answer what would happen if a CMO turned up with a creative vision. And the episode after that, we are, as I've mentioned a couple of times, going to speak to the international legend of marketing that is Jeffrey Moore. We're going to dive into crossing the chasm and zone to win to discover how businesses should exploit or defend disruption. And if you want a hint, it's all about territory. Now, if you've enjoyed the show, why not hit follow? We would love you to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it means a lot to us. Or if it's easier for you, please recommend us to a friend or post on LinkedIn tagging at Unicorny. I'm your host, Dom Halls. Nicola Fairley is the series producer. Laura Taylor McAllister is production assistant. Pete Allen is the editor. And Ornella Weston and me, Dom Halls, are your writers. You have been listening to Unicorny, which is a Selby Anderson production. This episode is sponsored by Selby Anderson, the agency group that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future. Selby Anderson's agencies serve global clients in financial services, enterprise tech, channel, industry, utilities, pharmaceutical and biotech. If you want to win the future, Find out more at selvianderson.com. <laughs>